body. <clears throat> Sensing the world around you, visual consciousness, auditory consciousness, moving a little, getting yourself into, into this and uh, so it's important not to just jump out of a meditation um, session to if you've been in something deep so you just open out of it use your body as a as a center physical sensation you go from subtle to stronger body subtle body to the strong to the more sense body, physical body and then you use open that door first of all and then the other doors So, yeah, is that okay? Oh, yeah. Hmm? So, why don't you take a minute or so, just have a wriggle, rest or flex your legs, and we'll see if we can get the technology working. day of 2015 and tomorrow is 2016 <laughs> I don't fortnightly or the weekly one pra, something like that, use a conventional time to stop, pause, regather, 
determine, firm up, check out. And uh, often, New Year is often a custom for people to make resolutions, New Year's resolutions. So um, the resolution I would uh, suggest you can you can pick up if you like, if you don't know what resolution to make, and you know, I use the resolution because it's a it's a there's a story with it. It's a Buddhist resolution, and it's a, the resolution is look near, look far. Right? You know this story. Look near, look far. It's a simple resolution. Look near, look far. <laughs> and the story is, and it's a kind of fable that in uh, some bygone age. There was a king, and he had a, a couple of um, servants of some kind, minister, I don't know, a man and a woman, and there was a plot against them, and they, people convinced the king that they were his enemies, or going to betray him or kill him or something else. So he, being a paranoid king, he uh, had them dragged out and dragged around the town and had them to be executed, their heads chopped off. So they had a little boy, son, and uh, just as they were being put into this block to have their heads cut off, the father looked round at the son and said, Look near. Look far. Look near, son. Look far. Remember, look near. Look far. And that was his last words, and they cut his head off. He and his wife got their heads cut off. So the little boy ran away and to cut a long story short, he was brought up, somebody found him, brought him up till he was a, a young young man, youth, in his teens. And he was coming back to the city and uh, he was playing a flute, I think. And the king heard him, oh, it was an interesting sound, and invited him in. The same king. Didn't recognize him, of course. The little boy knew who he was, though. <laughs> And anyway, so he gradually, he, the king was pleased with him and gave him a job and then he was very effective. He gradually rose in the king's service and um, he became the king's charioteer. And so they'd ride around in the chariot, with, he would drive the chariot and the king would sit there. And he became his trusted, trusted charioteer. So one day they were all going on a hunt, the king and his retinue going out hunting. And uh, in the course of this hunt, the, the, the king chariot got separated from the rest, and the rest of the retinue went off chasing deer, and the king and his chari- the chariot went off in the other direction. And the king said, oh, it's hot today, why don't we stop for a while? They stopped, and he said, oh, you know, I feel pretty tired, I think I'd like to lie down and have a nap. So, I said, oh, yeah, it's pretty uncomfortable. He said, oh, can I put my head in your lap? to his charioteer. This is the lad who'd had his parents killed, so the king puts his head in his lap, and this young man looks down. Right, he's got a sword. He puts his hand on the hilt of the sword. Right. And then he hears his father say, Look near! Look near! He He looked into his heart. That's as near as you can get. And he saw this kind of bubbling fury and rage and hatred. Pushed the sword back. And he he got hold of the sword again. He heard his father say, look far, look far. And he looked far, what was that? He looked into the future. If I kill him, they're going to want to kill me. There's going to be civil war. People will be killing each other. These are the consequences. Push the sword back again. <laughs> and so then the, the king woke up and the young man explained what this is all about. The king was kind of both terrified but then also very amazed at this act of forgiveness. So the, the, the king then let everybody out of jail, <laughs> let all the prisoners go free and had a big public holiday and gave all his belongings away and so forth. This is what they generally do in 
in good Buddhist stories, kings end up giving everything away and <laughs> I wish we could have more of that happen. Anyway, look near, look far. And what it means, and you can use it yourself, hope you don't get in the same situation, but look near is look right into your heart at any moment. You know, when you're irritated and look at the consequence, look far, look at the results, look at the long term. So this is the way we can work with these hindrances, which everybody experiences, hindrance of ill will, hindrance of uh, sense desire, hindrance of uh, indolence, slothfulness, dullness, lack of energy, lack of mental application, hindrance of uh, restlessness, worrying, flurrying, itchy, restless, and the hindrance of doubt wavering, unable to determinedly enter into what we're doing because we keep thinking maybe this, maybe that, could be, maybe not. You never get to know anything. So the idea is to really begin to acknowledge these and look near. It means don't don't look at what's causing it. You know, like it's somebody else's fault that you're annoyed. People are you know unpleasant to you or something or things aren't going the way you like. That's looking. That's looking in the not near, not far. That's looking at the <laughs> at the world, and and so. But you look near. You look at the sense of irritation and irritability, and how your heart feels like that, and realize if you if you sustain that state, or if you don't release that state, if you don't release this tendency for ill will, then this kind of you're going to feel ill will about something else. And so this tendency continues. So when we feel ill will, we should, uh, we look near and we look far, we think, oh good, this is a chance, particularly in meditation, a chance to sit down and really look into this thoroughly, deeply. Now, as, uh, sometimes it's not people so much as just situations. I was in a, when I was uh, early training at the monastery I was at, they had a, a big, big festival because they were establishing a proper ordination precinct. So this was an enormously important event in the history of the monastery because it becomes a place where people can go forth. And so they had a kind of big celebration. And it went on for 11 days, the celebration. And the celebration is, is noisy. They had uh, various uh, kind of festivities and people making some movies playing somewhere out there and the people shouting and fundraising and all kinds of stuff going on. And it went on all day. And it went on all night. It was round the clock, people were doing stuff. People in Thailand certainly know how to party. They, they're really good at it. And before then, I'd been, I'd had, you know, my meditation was kind of okay, but I'd always be annoyed by the, the sound. Like once every now and then, particularly on the one prowl, there'd be a, there'd be a PA system, there'd be sort of, Broadcasting this sermon or the chanting, you know, noise, and then the frogs would croak very loud at night. They didn't like that noisy frogs. And occasionally, you hear a sound from the village, and I didn't like that noisy village disturbing me. <laughs> so when this eleven-day festival happened, they didn't tell me this was going to happen. It just started. And you're waiting for it to end, it didn't end. The sound didn't end, it was really loud. And you first of all, you get annoyed, then you get frustrated, then your mind goes into these waves of, you know, this is supposed to be a meditation monastery, and da 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 da, what's all this silly stuff going on? And don't people realize I'm trying to meditate, samadhi, and da da da, going on and on, this kind of inner, inner stuff. But the sound kept going, sound didn't care. And it went on for 11 days. After about three or four days of it, my mind began to stop doing that. It gave up. It gave up fighting. (laughs) And I realized the only sound that had to stop, really, was the sound of my mind (laughs) complaining. (laughs) And it felt very peaceful inside. It was just, you were just living like a, like a fish in water. It was just like swimming through this ocean of sound quite peacefully. 
you, could, you walked in it, you bathed in it, you ate in it, because it was just the, like a continual medium. And it got very peaceful inside that. Because in fact, if your mind, my mind went out to the sound, it would get agitated. If it tries to resist the sound, it would get stubborn and willful. If it just was open to the sound, without getting interested in it, or resisting it, it became quiet, peaceful. I found this very interesting, that it wasn't about, certainly wasn't about shutting it out. Uh, it was actually opening to it, and relaxing. And the sound just travels through the ears, and the mind isn't there to receive it. <laughs> you know, when the mind opens, it also becomes vast and measureless. Things, it's like um, something, when it's closed, it's, it's got, definitely got a, a, a border and a boundary, and it, it wants, it pulls in, and it fights. It, when it opens, it doesn't have boundaries. And so there's nothing it's like a space that things can ride through, and your mind is just. And then recognizing that, I reckon it was very helpful because I began to recognize not just sound, but all the things that irritate me. <laughs> you open up, they don't, they don't impact. There's a sort of ceasing of the, of the contact ceases, you're not, you're not moved by it. So you look near. And when you look far, you look very near, and you look far, you, you recognize, well, the sound's going to go on forever. People are going to be running around making noises, crashing things around. That's going to happen till, as long as I live. That's the nature of sound. It's doing its job, which is to make sound. Its job is not to annoy me, its job is to make sound happen. <laughs> My job is to not mess with it, to not fight with it, to not delight in it, just to let it pass. That's my job. When I do that, and then wherever I go, it's quiet. It's very useful for that, because then you begin to recognize, rather than trying to arrange the rest of the world, to make it comfortable, you just make your own heart comfortable. Then the world is out there. Pretty much the same with uh, with sense desire. We are talking earlier about sexual desire. And sexual desire particularly is, is a very clear, <laughs> if anything is clear about it, but the more you study it, you realize most of it's a complete fantasy. Uh, it's fantasy. Desire, tanha, craving, is always about something you're not experiencing and your mind fantasizes. And it's a huge, um, very powerful effect. So it goes on to bodies, it goes on to food, it goes on to objects that you can buy in shops, and they're all covered with this particular fantasy quality. And you see them advertised in, in kind of fantastic ways. You know, people looking ecstatic over holding a phone. Well, you know, holding a phone does not make you ecstatic. It's a fantasy. <laughs> and it, everything, people washing a shirt, looking euphoric over washing a shirt. You don't get euphoric washing a shirt. It's fantasy. But this fantasy, I, I call it um, fant fairy dust. Things are covered with this sparkling fairy dust. And, uh, you know, you get dazzled by it. And, of course, the world of purchasing and so on is very much geared to triggering that. That love of fantasy. It's going to make me feel good. It's glowing. It's bright. It's luminous. It's wonderful. And, of course, uh, sexuality all gets painted in the same way. The whole realm of sense desire, if you look really close into it, and the theme of looking close means you first start, you, you, you cut off the particular object that you're fascinated by, just look into the experience of fascination, 
what happens? The mind is slightly drugged, and it's rocking, and it's uh, it's, it's like a narcotic. There's waves of excitement, passion running through. This is pulling, pushing, and pulling to get out and get that which they, we we crave. And then you look again. Is that in the object, or is it in the heart? Is it in the object, or is it in the heart? How come, you know, when you get something, or you buy it, or whatever, it no longer has that same quality? Because it doesn't have any craving on it. Once you have it, you can't crave it. And the craving sprinkles this glitter over what we don't have. And we get this uh, almost like a hallucination. So when you look very neat, you look closely into that, you you see that's what it is. And it's this stirring in the heart, and you look closely into that, and you look into your body, into your breathing, into your mind, and you can find a way of just breathing out, cooling it, cooling it. Because all the hindrances cause a kind of tension. We get fired up. Ill will, you can get ill will over differences of opinion, start to argue. As you argue, you get fired up. If we ill will, your mind goes hard, like a rock. And you see two people arguing, they're like two rocks thumping against each other. Yeah? And the hard, yeah, the more you get, then people just get harder and harder as they argue. Look into the future, where's that going? Creating enemies, creating regrets, causing offense. Is this really worthwhile? Wouldn't it be better to have a mind that's soft and pliable? Same thing with sense desire. Is there ever going to be end, an end to it? Look into the future. Look far. Where does sense desire end? Uh, we think it'll end when we get what we want. <laughs> but it doesn't, because it hops on to the next thing. Yeah. So you look at the fire thing. My mind's going to keep doing this. It's pulling. It's pulling. It'll keep doing this for the rest of my life. As long as I've got senses, I'll keep doing it. How uncomfortable is that going to be? How much energy is it going to draw out of me? Is it possible just to be contented? To experience the inner contentment. That if we're looking for fulfillment and satisfaction in the sense realm, it doesn't happen. But it does happen within. That's the whole teaching of spirituality. There is a quality of contentment and satisfaction, and it comes through stepping back and relinquishing craving. It happens not because you're losing something, or you are, you're losing an obstacle. You recognize the quality of senses are as the mind pulling out. Now what happens if it doesn't pull out, but it sits within all that energy that's running out, with its power and vigor, is now resting. Now that energy is contained, the, the vigor of it is contained, it doesn't, it doesn't, you haven't crushed it, uh, and it's there to give you happiness and contentment. That's why we do it. So we look near, we look far, causes and effects. Look at um, when we get a sense of indolence, uh, dullness, laziness, not putting forth energy. And this isn't just falling asleep in meditation, it's about a kind of certain lack of clarity and fullness of energy in what we're doing. We're not with what we're doing, completely with it. We're kind of half-hearted or can't be bothered. And uh, look where that goes, you're living a life that's half asleep. So we don't really learn very much because our mind is not open and awake, so it doesn't pick anything up properly, doesn't 
sense it properly, it doesn't attune to it properly, it doesn't learn. So in meditation it becomes obvious that that state of, of sloth, as it's called, or torpid, the mind is stagnant, is extremely unpleasant. And again, what's really necessary is to open. Sometimes in this, these dull states, there's an instinct that one wants to sort of try to find some, hot, some firm place or somewhere within to get away from it because it's unpleasant. Actually, you need to open up. Open up to the edges of the skin, open the eyes, open the body, lift the body, pull the body open, open the hearing, open the sense fields, maintain stability, open the breathing, breathe fully, deeply, and you can get out of that, that dull state. And you recognize you don't, with energy, you don't need to be doing in order to have energy. Sometimes this dullness is a result of using up too much energy in doing things. So when we start to do less, the mind kind of doesn't know how to operate. It's like a car that can go fine at 50 50 kilometers an hour, but can't, when when you're trying to travel at five kilometers an hour, the engine stalls. It's a bit like that. We don't know how to stay in a steady state, just present. The mind doesn't know how to do that because it's it's set to a particular quality of doing it energy, busy. And then when you start to, to turn that down, it blanks out. So this is not unusual. I've known people who are very vigorous, doing lots of stuff, but they come to meditate, they just plonk. <laughs> Because you, you, know, you, you, you don't know how to adjust. So you, you look at that and you recognize you want to spend the rest of the, your life being busy and going to this kind of surge slump state. We are either incredibly busy and active, your mind isn't rested, or, and then it slumps. So you can't feel anything either. So we tune into what encourages us to have a more sensitive awareness we're doing less so you look very near into the into the source of that and you look at the consequences you look at the conditions that bring that around and sometimes this means that um, hopefully all these things the hindrances help us to adjust our lives you can't just meditation certainly brings the point home at how uncomfortable they are and hopefully it brings the point home that they're not necessary. But they also the hindrances say, you know, you you're running your life on the wrong track. A life geared to having things the way you want them is going to bring up your will. A life geared to sensual enjoyment is going to bring up frustration and discontent. Life geared to getting lots of things done, you're going to end up feeling dull. You can contemplate this. Even things like, I know these people have high standards of perfection. They want to go to the best place, really good at this. They've got very high standards of meditation, high standards of conduct. This happens in in, in monks. And uh, they've got high expectations of the monastery, the perfect, good monastery, good teacher, good community, good situation, nice balance between the forest and also having all the requisites and having perfect meditation. And all it ends up is finding more and more causes to complain. <laughs> so if you, look for, for, if you look for perfection, what you find is fault-finding. Yeah. So uh, perfect means I'm contented with as it is, I'm making peace with it. That's all the world of conditions can offer. The world of people, places, buildings, sounds, sights, touches, relationships, communities, organizations, you name it, it can't offer perfection. 
it can only offer you something that you practice with and accept and open to and give the best you can to and make peace with. You're looking for the perfect partner. Not going to happen. But someone you can get on with and you can talk to, work things out with, that's possible. (laughs) There's no fantasy people. Also, the quality of uh, restlessness is is very normal in sensory condition because when we have sense organs, there's pleasure and pain, and the body particularly is a restless experience. How long can you sit without? Oh, if I just oh, if I could straighten. Oh, if I didn't have that thing in my shoulder. Oh, if I could find a bigger cushion, oh my knee, oh my back, oh my (laughs) and we don't notice it because most of the time, you know, we just move around a bit and it's pretty much not just the body but uh, the other senses you get a bit bored when you switch something on you know, the sense of um, well-being is dropping so you drink something and the sense of being agreeable feeling is diminishing so you switch something on. I'm fine. I'm not suffering. No suffering here. I'll just switch that on. No suffering here. I'll eat something. No, I'm not suffering. I just, uh, um, you know, go for a ride in my car. No, no, don't, not, no suffering. It's the movement that helps the mind to think that <laughs> we're, we're not suffering. You start stop still. Oh, well, it's boring. It's suffering. It's uh, painful. I'm suffering. (laughs) My mind's restless. It's suffering. (laughs) Uh, Where did all that come from? It's this meditation makes you suffer. I was doing all right before I did that. (laughs) Well, you look at how, look look closely into restlessness. uh, The need to keep going hither and thither, moving around, just build up a lot of more patience, open to it, fidgety mind, fidgety body. Because it's not just bodily pain, you know, certainly it's the nature of bodies and while we're experiencing sense contact, you just have to do the best you can and kind of move around a bit. But uh, there's also psychological discomfort. I remember I was with this uh, this young monk, came and stayed in the monastery, and uh, he'd been he was he'd only recently gone forth, and he'd gone forth in Sri Lanka, and he'd been about nine months there, and he felt like a change. He couldn't find a teacher or something. He wanted to change, so he came to Britain, and we said, well. Not right now, because we're on a winter retreat. Come back later. Oh, I really want to come, really want to come, really want to come. And we'll come back in a couple of months' time, because we're on our winter retreat. We don't take new people. So he went to another place for a while. Oh, I really want to come, really want to come. Okay, you can come for a few weeks. He came for a few weeks. And he stayed for a while, a little while, two or three months. And then, oh, I really need to go to Australia. I need to go to Australia. What are you going to Australia for? Oh, my, I've got a friend there. We're going to go too long. We're going to go wandering in Australia. But you really, you're a junior monk. You should stay with a teacher. Oh, I really need to go wandering. I really need to go traveling. You're a junior monk. You don't go anywhere for the first five years. Oh, no, I really need to go. Go. <laughs> so I call him Grasshopper. Venerable Grasshopper. <laughs> So he went to Australia and then with his friend, then he really needed to disrobe. So he disrobed, he hopped out of robes. Then he really needed to, to go forth again. So he hopped back in, found somebody to make him a salmonera. Then he needed to disrobe again, so he hopped out, <laughs> became a lay, lay person. Last time I saw him, he was in Australia. I really want to be a monk. <laughs> so I said, well, just stay here. Stay here. 
it's all right. They provide you with food and lodgings. You know, you can study, you can read, you can meditate. It's good enough. They're not bad people. Just stay. Oh, yeah, yeah, I understand. Make a commitment to it. Stay. Uh, Last I heard, he he jumped off and he decided he had to go to Thailand to find a teacher. (laughs) Federal grasshopper, they called him. Restlessness. And it's particularly powerful, of course, in, in young men. A lot of energy. And we believe in it. We believe in the voice that says, oh, it's better over there. You need to do this. You need to go there. This isn't, you know, that kind of thing. When you really get into it and you stop the justifications, show me, what does this feel like? This itchy, unsettled state. And you think, we think, if we act upon it, we'll find a place where it will settle. Maybe do it once or twice, and then they should know. After, after once or twice, you should know it doesn't settle like that. <laughs> it settles when you put aside the topics, the rationale, open up, you know, open, the, open the jitta. How do you open the jitta? Well, instead of following the feeling, or the emotion, the sensations, the stories, they're, they're actually closing the jitta, believe it or not. They act like a, uh, something that keeps pushing it in, pushing it into the hindrance. The stories push it into the hindrance. If you drop the story, then you've got a chance to bring up the more wisdom, because your mind isn't deafened by these stories, your mind isn't blinded by these images, and then you can feel directly the itchy quality, and you, instead of trying to close down on that, you breathe in and out, you relax it, you begin to open, the mind begins to soften and open, and it finds that there's a place, and it seems like a small place, where you feel a little more calm and cool, and you stay in that seems like a small place. You look really closely into that, as it opens, that small place gets bigger and bigger and bigger till you can't find an end to it. It becomes a deep peacefulness. So the, the other day I was um, had a dental appointment, just a checkup to check my teeth, and a very nice. Uh, dentist, young man. So he gave a very thorough examination. He was really into teeth. X-rayed them, explained periodontal and gums and all sorts of things about teeth that I didn't know. Different layers of them and nerves. And he said, okay, well, everything seems about all right. We'll give you a clean-up. Okay. So he said, uh, so I'm lying back and then he's, he's got his Open the mouth, he's got his hand, the mouth with a kind of prong drilling thing, and it's spraying water all around the inside of the mouth. And there's another man, he's got a hose, and he's got his hand in my mouth. So there's two men with their hands in my mouth, all this gadgetry and water. And he said, Tell me if you don't feel comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I'm drowning in water with two, two human hands in my mouth. Well, I can think of it being more comfortable, but you can't say anything because you can't because you've got these hands in your mouth. So I go, rah, 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 rah. <laughs> and I must admit, I felt like it, you know a little bit like it'd be nice to get out of this, but I recognised the sign of of that impatience and just relax. And just I started to contemplate, send my attention down into my feet, and you go into your feet, you feel the the soles of the feet, you have the, the heels and you have the balls and the toes and the, the undersole sole of the foot, if you bring your attention down there, it's got a lovely open quality to it. You just practice opening your feet and sending your awareness down to the soles of your feet and out through the palms of your hands and just opening up. There's kind of crazy stuff happening at the top end of, of this bit body <laughs> these people <laughs> scrambling around inside my mouth 
and trying to gurgling, trying to breathe. That's somewhere else, you know. And there's this very nice channel of uh, of a cool energy from the soles of the feet into the body and out through the hand. Stay with that, you know. Because the you know this is this is an in, we could say an interior abiding, because it does it starts off feeling very internal. So you look at it very closely, you get the quality of it. And the nature of mind is such, the mind is actually measureless. As it opens, often it it becomes very limited because it's squashed and constricted by thoughts, fears, emotions. They they kind of close it. They act like a, a skin around it. It closes it, you begin to release those, the mind opens, and it really doesn't have a limit. Well, I don't see a limit. There's a kind of measureless quality of, of that openness. And if you sustain that, you know, because every now and then something comes up, your mind wants to contract around sound, sight, feeling, sensation, and just keep opening to that then you recognize what we think is outside, in one way, like the world, sight, sound, is outside, and our mind is some little thing inside that's being peppered by all these things. Actually, it's the other way around. The measureless mind is is the big thing, and inside that, there's these little kind of phenomena arising within it. The mind is actually measureless, and phenomena arise within it. If they were really outside, you wouldn't know them, would you? They're outside your mind. How can you know something outside your mind? How can you know something arising and passing if it's outside? You know it because it's happening inside. But our way we our minds interpret thing is that's outside me. It's outside me. Yeah. Now that is true because me occupies a very small part of my of the mind. The me bit of the mind is the bit that's involved with owning, controlling, agency, uh, being somebody. And that is a kind of mental structure that sits within the mind and tries to imagine that it's Lord of all, that it owns all of it, even though it's constantly frustrated and disappointed by that. thinks, if I could only have it all, then I'd be satisfied. But it can't, because it's only a small thing. It's, it's measurable. You get to the end of your wishes, the end, the, you know, the end of your happiness. So this opening is also associated with something like an, we can say, not, not an, a release from self or an opening out of self, opening out of this, this me. And when you look near, that's very comfortable because it means that the mind is actually quite free. Things don't have to be the way I want them or following my opinion. I can be with that or my mind can be with that. And in the long run, it means we find a, a measureless abiding. And it's these hindrances are there and they come up, they're always there, but they become very obvious in meditation. And they really are like uh, tough teachers because they don't give up until you do the right practice. Doubt. Doubt is the wavering, the mind, uncertainty. And uh, so normally we try to be, have certainty. We'll be able to think things through, have a certain plan, strategy, know what we're doing, know what's going on, 
know who other people are, know how we are with them, do they like me, not like me, am I this, am I that, how do they feel? And, uh, you know, that can, that can, we can spend a lot of time doing that. Trying to get certain about where we are, how we, how we're seen, um, and so on. You know, in, in my own life currently, then I, I do quite a, I travel around quite a lot, not because I'm restless, but because people ask me. And I'm generally quite an obliging <laughs> kind of person. <laughs> and uh, quite happy to help wherever it's useful, so that's fine. But then, wherever I go, I don't know the people. I don't know the situation. Sometimes I go to a place I don't know. Sometimes I go to places where I don't even speak the language. Go to, to monasteries in Thailand, I don't know. And they can feel quite what wavery, you know. And so I've, because I'm doing it all the time, I recognize, you know, I get everybody's name, but then I end up forgetting them anyway. Because <laughs> I can't store all that many names. I could get to know one place, but then I'm gone again in a week. And do the same thing again. Why don't I just trust? And instead of needing to know everything before I feel certain, recognize you can't know everything. You can't feel certain because life itself is uncertain. So just abide in that still openness and trust that when your mind is open and sensitive and tuned in, you'll pick up what you need, what you, you know. <laughs> you'll pick up because you're not, your mind isn't stupid. You know, you look around and you check what people are doing. Well, the best thing is just to try and fit in with what everybody else is doing. And, uh-huh. and you look around and you don't want to just be constantly asking, just, just tune in and fit in. So you don't have to know that, I don't have to know that much. And that's a great relief. It's the same with uh, giving retreats, giving retreats. So some places they sit one a year in advance, what's the retreat going to be? And I think, I don't know. Uh, what's the talks going to be about? I don't know. What system do you teach? I don't really have a system. Um, you haven't prepared list of talks. No. Because I don't know who I'm talking to. I can't talk until I talk to people. I don't sit around talking to myself. So I don't know what I'm going to talk about. Because <laughs> there's nobody to talk to. <laughs> what happens is I get somewhere and see some people and I start talking. <laughs> and you get a feeling for what feels appropriate or comfortable when you and you talk like that, but I haven't got a particular thing to, to talk about. And I'm fine with that. I keep wondering when people are going to find out I don't know anything. <laughs> you know, I don't have a system or a technique or a... And I don't have a plan. But you just tune in and bring up the mind of goodwill and see, see what happens with that. In fact, this is the um, when the Buddha advised people on teaching, he said, well, there's a few things you, you need to learn. One is that you should always teach with a mind of just aimed at, based on goodwill and compassion. Just trust that and see what it picks up. See what it, what comes from that sense of offering. Speak directly from what you know. See what comes from that. And that was, that's the basic te teaching. That's our teacher training program. <laughs> so there's a lot of don't know and around. And after a while that gets very peaceful, rather than struggling to fill in 
that that openness, you just let it be open and bring the goodwill into it and trust it. Because the open mind, the measureless mind, doesn't get involved with lots of thoughts because the thoughts tend to block it. I don't know how you can teach openness from a, a mind that's busy. That's pretty much the same, you know, you have to trust that direct ex- direct experience of knowing when your mind is hindered and when it's unhindered. What does it feel like whenever any one of these hindrances drops or abates? So look very near, look very close at that. You don't think, I've got to do this and that, deal with ill will, deal with sense, desire, just look at one experience of having so much to do, for example, makes you restless. So, even thinking you've got a lot of, you've got a lot to do as a meditator, there's lots of things you need to learn, study and get on with and practice and develop and what does that do? What's the result of that? Look into that. Just feel doubt, restlessness, worry. What about if it's as simple as can that very experience you're having, can you relax that? Can you go into knowing that, relax that, breathe out through that and recognize in terms of that there's nothing to know. In terms of that kind of knowing, conceptual knowing, planning knowing, knowing that you could write down there's nothing to know. Trying to get used to that. It makes one feel uncertain, wavery. Okay, the uncertain, wavery experience. Pause, rest, breathe out. You're here. Nobody's bothering you. You don't have to pass an exam. Right? How is that? How would you define it? Well, you probably say something's absent. Pressure is absent. Movement is absent. You look into it deeply, you'll find there's a quality as you look more closely and have confidence in that. There's a quality of something quite bright and spacious there. This is perhaps why the Buddha said this is a subtle teaching. So he didn't, wasn't certain whether people would even get it. Because uh, openness and release, you can't pin it. You can't have it. You can't figure it. You can't measure it. You can't say this or that. It's where all that stops. And by a large, this, uh, the mind, when it's affected by ignorance, tries to cling and hold on and get bigger than that. So, oh, yeah, I've done this retreat, I think I'll do another retreat. I like this teacher, that teacher, yeah, I've done this teacher, I've done five teachers, I think I have another one. Six teachers, I'll go to Burma, yeah, that's good, I have another one. I have a list of these things. I've done Buddhism, got that all sorted out, now I'll move on, you know. I've done Theravada, now we're going to another vehicle, Mahayana. Then I go into Zen. Then I go into Dzogchen. Then I go into Advaita. It's all like, I'll get it. I'll get it. <laughs> I'll get it. What have you got? I'll get your bit. Add that to my list. This is uh, the wrong way. Because it's not about getting, it's about releasing. You don't get release. And you can see the accumulative nature even of, of knowledge. You've done this, you know that, you've been here, you've got that one. You become a, a very well-versed person and your list, and then you have another one and you accumulate more you know, systems and aspects of Buddhism. You get more and more of it. So you become a very proficient, knowledgeable Buddhist 
And where does that go? Look, look far, where's that going? Tends to go towards conceit. Now rather than, you know, becoming a proficient Buddhist, why don't we release the mind directly? Because that's what the Buddha was teaching. There were some, you know, some of the stories people just knew very little. There's one story of a monk who didn't, couldn't understand much of the teaching. We used to sit, stand with a, a kind of cloth in his hand in the heat of the day and he'd noticed it got sweaty and dark. And he used that as his meditation thing. <laughs> and he realized some, some profound realization occurred from that. So, you know, it can be pretty simple things, but it's the sense of um, how the mind opens to to beyond thought and beyond accumulation. Then, you know, when there's nothing to accumulate, there's a, there's a burden off the mind, isn't there? We don't have to keep adding more to it. This is the way of release. And so you look into that, you recognize that you know, release is both possible here, now, for a moment, whenever that clenching habit called grasping relaxes, stops, there's a little bit of it. As you understand that little bit of it, the diminution of grasping, it starts at grasping at sense contact, grasping at um, systems and techniques, grasping at progress or decline, grasping at the sense of I am this, and these are all subtler and subtler forms of it. Whether that releases a little, you get some peace. And you look far, you realize if it encourages you, that's the way. Release a little bit more, you'll get even more peace. Now that's something, <laughs> if you want to accumulate anything, <laughs> get into that habit of um, knowing how to, to let go and open. And it's not a casual thing, and it's not a confused thing, and it's not a loose thing, and it's not a light thing. It's not even that easy. So we do spend time reflecting, building up the supports to give us that clarity, the confidence, the strength, the mindfulness, and the collectedness, and the wisdom, these indriyas, to make that the chitta know itself. It steadies in itself, it knows itself, it's comfortable in itself, it starts to blossom and it comes out of, say, it comes out of the conditioned world. So, New Year's resolution, get enlightened. (laughs) Put it on your fridge door, must remember. It means get enlightened when you're at the dentist, learn to relax. It means get enlightened when somebody's annoying you, learn to not fight. Get enlightened when you're, the, the, the advertisements are telling you something you need, and learn to, learn to push it away. This is, enlightenment's like that. It's very, in some ways, it's, it's an everyday process, an everyday practice. So, it's, uh, Offer this for your reflection tonight. So um, tonight we will. Uh, um, one of one of your members here, and I'm not going to tell you who, suggested it being New Year's Eve. We sit up all night. <laughs> this person will remain anonymous. <laughs> But I got kind of slightly interested, intrigued by the notion. I thought, well, maybe we can invite you to sit until 10 or to practice together until 10. I just stretch the envelope a little bit. Yeah? Why not? But you make your own choices. I will be here uh, practicing until 10. And then I'm going to go back to my little room and practice the reclining posture. (laughs) But uh, 
So if it's, when you have a retreat like this, sometimes it's helpful to just bring up a bit more energy and stretch, push the limits and see what you can do. But if you don't feel any energy or you feel um, well, then please take a rest. But if you like to join in, do it in the right spirit and it gives us some strength.